When you're ready to pop the question, the last thing you want to do is second-guess the ring. At BlueNile.com, you can design a one-of-a-kind ring with the ease and convenience of shopping online. Choose your diamond and setting. When you find the one, you'll get it delivered right to your door. Go to BlueNile.com and use promo code LISTEN to get $50 off your purchase of $500 or more. That's code LISTEN at BlueNile.com for $50 off your purchase. BlueNile.com, code LISTEN. Hello and welcome to the Red Box Politics Podcast in the Times. I'm Matt Chorley. This is the last in our series of specials from the party conference season. I'm in Glasgow with the SNP. Now that sound you can hear in the back is the sound of SNP delegates enjoying their lunch and no doubt talking about independence because bluntly that is what they do. Although it's not officially on the menu here. One of the really striking things arriving in Glasgow and thumbing through the official agenda is that none of the motions and debates planned at the main conference hall mentioned independence at all. Looking around the conference centre, the SEC on the bank of the Clyde, there were lots of uh, big yellow boards with the slogan Progress, listing the many achievements of the SNP government, scrapping the public sector pay cap, phasing out petrol vehicles, more money for schools, more money for hospitals, the new Queen's Ferry crossing, votes at 16. You name it, every area of uh, Scottish life is covered there, with the small exception of whether or not it stays in the Union. The party leadership seems to have tried to uh, impose the message that they are not talking about independence as much as they were, acknowledging that perhaps people in Scotland have uh, had enough of it, frankly. But how does a party whose whole reason for being is leaving the Union keep party activists motivated, not least after almost 10 years of non-stop campaigning and near hysteria uh, for the course. During this episode, I'll be speaking to some SNP MPs about whether or not there is a way back for the party, or did it peak back in 2015 when it won all but three of the MPs in Scotland before losing a third of them in June this year. I will also take a look back over Nicola Sturgeon's big conference speech in which she laid out her ambition for another 10 years in Parliament. Is that a sign? of someone who hasn't quite checked electoral reality or just the only way of geeing up the party faithful. But first, the sort of conference conversation that I like. I sat down in a pub with Hamish Macdonald, the Scottish political editor of The Times, and Kirsty Blackman, the SNP MP, to discuss, amongst other things, the impact of Brexit on the fight for independence and whether or not this party conference has been a bit flat. Yeah, I think it is a fair criticism. And I think that, you know, Kirsty will probably disagree with me on this, but you, know, you, you have to see the SNP in the context of where it's been over the last few years. And when you look back to 2014, referendum on independence, 2015, huge surge in, in membership, and the SNP was riding high all through that time, there was always going to be a drop-off after that. There was going to be a time when the SNP conference was not the great sort of explosion of, of, of hysteria that you talk about, and this is it. And the SNP have come here on the back of losing a third of the seats that they had in the general election. And so, yes, it is a bit flat, it is a bit dull, and, and, you know, I think that people are looking for something to give them a bit of a boost. Kirsty, is it just that after 10 years, the party's finally just behaving like a normal party in government? 
I don't think the party's behaving like a normal party in government after 10 years. If you look at the programme for government that we had, I think that inspired a huge amount of um, excitement, actually. And from political commentators that wouldn't normally be excited by things that we say, there was across the board, people were keen to think about and talk about kind of bold and radical policies. So I think that's hugely positive. I mean, you would expect things to be slightly disappointing after the football result um, (laughs) that we we had. Um, But, you know, I hesitate to believe that our conference is... Um, flatter than the Tory conference given the lack of leadership that they have and we very clearly have got a strong leadership team in our party given the Tories are in chaos and infighting and we don't have that we are united, we are a a fantastic group of MPs and MSPs that are all working together for uh, a common aim of a a better Scotland. Now one of the things that struck me and having been at the Tories last week as well is just the mentality of parties, you had the Labour Party who lost the election but behaved like they won. The Tory party spent the whole time over-analysing and over-apologising and feeling dreadful about the fact that they ended up with their leader still in number 10. And what's interesting is actually the SNP, having lost, as Hamish said, a third of your seats, there doesn't appear to be that sort of wound-licking and sort of retreat into all what went wrong. Basically, you're pretending almost like June didn't happen and carrying on in the same, but actually, it's one of those things where if you if you project the confidence of people who've won, people forget that you did that you you suffered losses. If you look at what happened after the election, absolutely, we didn't win, you know, 56 out of 59 seats in Scotland, but you really wouldn't expect us to do that twice. Nicola Sturgeon said after that that we're going to have a period of reflection where we're going to look at where we were, we're going to look at what the electorate had said to us. And I think the result of that has been looking at things like the programme for government. So actually, we've done that. We've we've done the kind of looking and reassessing and having a, a wonder about what people thought of us after the election. We're, we're beyond that now. So we're now on to the stage of we've written something new this is what we're thinking about and this is the way we're going to go forward so we don't need to do wound looking it's past now what Hamish one of the things that struck me uh, on the way out when I was going through the uh, agenda for what was on it conference all sorts of policy ideas on under 18 serving in the army the tampon tax uh, the internet nuclear weapons there was one thing that was really uh, missing and I, I went through it a couple of times I did a control F to try and find it there was no mention of independence now to a lay person coming up from London uh, to the SMP conference that seems odd to me can you explain and I'll ask Kirsty for her explanation in a sec but what's your your take on, on what why that is well, on the surface, the party is trying to move away. I mean, the, the, the theme of this conference is to say, right, we're going to try and part the constitutional stuff. Not just independence, but Brexit as well. Brexit's in the background, but we're going to try and part that and really concentrate on domestic policies to set the, the government in Scotland up for the next few years. So that's the, that's the theme. That's what the leadership are trying to do. But then if you listen in the fringes and you listen to the podium speeches, and you know, all the leadership people will say this, independence will be there. The issue of independence will come up. You know, Nicola Sturgeon has said it herself in various interviews that she's done that she is not going to retreat from having another independence referendum. And it would be odd if she did. But yes, you look through the agenda. There's all sorts of interesting things there. But in a sense, there doesn't need to be independence because that they do want to park it and park it for as long as they can. Okay, so do you think that's part of the reason why the SNP has become more interesting? <laughs> that parking independence to one side has meant 
that you've come up with more interesting domestic policies, which have, you're, you're right, after 10 years in government, that's unusual for a, a, a sitting government to do that. But actually, it's suddenly meant by focusing on the domestic agenda, that, that, that's just made the SNP more interesting. But we've always focused on the domestic agenda. It's just that we've been accused of not focusing on the domestic agenda. If you look at you're laughing, Hamish. You're laughing. No, they, they, they have. They're focusing on the domestic agenda now. But no one can say that the SNP has not been concentrating on constitutional politics for the last five years. It, you know, it, it, it's that's what they've done. The, the the referendum on independence, and then the follow-up to that. Then we had Nicholas Urgent saying, "Yes, I'm going to have another one." If you do that kind of thing, it's it's going to overshadow all the domestic stuff you've done. Is there part of you that's a little bit? sick of constitutional conversations no do you think that some people in scotland might be a bit sick of the constitutional conversation i think some people are probably pretty sick of constitutional conversations but when you've got a tory government who have pushed for brexit and a number of whom support brexit under the banner of take back control then there are constitutional issues associated with that that has a big impact on how the constitution looks so whether or not independence is on the agenda people are having to talk about the constitution because we're having to talk about whether or not the powers that are coming back from the European Union will be reserved again by um, the UK and, or whether or not Scotland will see those. Waiting outside the pub in now, I saw two people walking past carrying yes flags. I don't know if they've been walking around non-stop for three years. They may well have been. Um, but explain this to me as a, as a lay person who doesn't follow every twist and turn of the independence debate. What is the logic of why... You should stay in the EU, but not stay in the UK. Why is one union pooling resources and decision-making and safety in numbers? Why is one okay, but not the other? The EU and the UK are structured completely differently. If you look at things in pure financial fiscal terms, right, the majority taxes that are collected in Scotland then go to the UK Treasury, and then the UK Treasury gives some of that money to Scotland, and they do it by some bizarre method about the Barnet consequentials. So basically, if they put up health spending in England, um, population share of that will go to Scotland. So the problem for that is the UK government are not making decisions about how to support the health system in Scotland. They're not giving Scotland the money that it needs. There is no needs basis of the Barnet formula. It's purely done on um, on a population share basis. So there is no understanding and no funding of our services that suit the people of Scotland. So the block grant goes to the Scottish government and then it has to decide how to divvy up the funding. Now, that is an asymmetrical relationship. The UK government holds all of the cards in regards to that, the UK government, you can kind of understand why they do, look at population centres like the southeast of England and think, how can we benefit the economy of the UK as a whole? Most people live in the southeast of England, let's do things. But isn't that the same with the money that we give to the EU, that they decide, Brussels decides where the money goes, we, we give more money to the EU than we get back, that's just part and parcel of being in a club. But the difference with the EU is the UK is giving the EU money rather than the UK giving the EU all the money and the EU giving them a slice back. That's how it works. So actually, it's about them paying a little bit, you know, paying subs, if you like, into into the club to be members of the club. Whereas for Scotland, the UK is taking all our money and then giving us some dinner money back. The Brexit debate has made the independence debate more complicated because... Immediately after the uh, Brexit vote happened, Nicola Sturgeon seemed to think or hope that this is going to lead to some increase in support for uh, independence because 60% of people in Scotland voted to stay in the EU and she thought that would transfer into 
people saying, well, if we went independent, then we can say you. That hasn't happened. And that's part of the reason why the issue's been slightly parked. How complicated do you think the Brexit issue will need to get? Or how bad do you think it will, the deal would have to be for that to sort of shift the dial in the way that actually in the last 18 months we haven't really seen a shift in the independence dial at all? You know everything in, in politics over the next few years will be hugely decided by what happens in Brexit. And we can't tell. It's very hard to tell at this stage what's going to happen. If we get to a situation where there is not just a hard Brexit, but we're looking at no deal at all, it's difficult to see how that's going to affect the electorate. But it may be it shifts a lot of people in Scotland across to the independence case if the independence case is then saying we want to get away from from what is turning into an absolute disaster and we want to go to Europe. But you're right. At the start, there wasn't that shift. I think Nicola Sturgeon thought that there would be such an sort of outrage within Scotland that in a sense, England had voted to leave and Scotland hadn't, that people would then jump on the independence bandwagon. Now, some did, but some actually went the other way. And you've got pro-leave, pro-independence supporters, and we've seen some of them at the conference here, who were saying, hold on, hold on, you know, all the, the, the motions and so on and the, what the leadership wants is a very, very pro-EU stance. And there is a, a strand within the SNP membership which says, no, we want, to be, we want to be out of the UK and we want to be out of the EU, and they don't like the fact that everything is... There's an, there's an assumption on the leadership's point of view that one leads to the other. So I think it is complicated, but it's very difficult at this, at this stage to tell quite where Brexit is going, and yet the, I think the electorate is very, very volatile. And the pro-independence camp could get a big boost if things really do go south as far as Brexit negotiations are concerned. Now, we've seen uh, in a YouGov poll for the Times that on the projections for the Holyrood elections, the, the pro-independence majority of the Greens and the SNP looks under threat. Uh, more people think that there shouldn't be an, uh, another referendum for five years than I uh, think there should be. And they see that people don't seem convinced they should have a referendum at the end of the Brexit talks or before one. So do you think that the time... Quite a lot needs to happen in the next year or so before, you know, for things to move. At what point do you think is the right point for Nicola Surgeon to put independence back on the agenda? Well, I think that she's faced with a difficulty in the sense that that, that, that 2021 point is important because there is no guarantee that, the, the, that Nicola Surgeon will get a pro-independence majority at the next election. So she has, until then, to call a referendum if she can, but she's at least put off for a year the point at which she will make the decision and even by this time next year I'm not entirely sure that we're going to really know where we're going with, with the Brexit negotiations. I, mean, I, I was listening to somebody one of the experts talking today who said if you all EU negotiations they tend to four, four fifths of the time nothing happens and then things happen at midnight and so if we work on that basis we probably won't know what's going on between the EU and the UK at that point we'll have to wait until that last little bit when things will, when things will move. So at this time next year Nicola Surgeon may not know no, she made the, the timing may, may still not be clear. And then if we get into the transition f phase after 2019, again, it's difficult. So I think Nicola Surgeon's in a difficult position. She wants to put the question to the Scottish people at some point before 2021, and yet nobody knows what's going to happen between then and now. And Kirsty, Nicola Sturgeon's saying this week, 10 years in government, let's talk about the next 10 years, projecting forwards, you know, 10 more years for the SNP. Where do you think the threat is for the SNP? Is it the Labour Party? Because in the election this year, the general election this year, both the Labour Party and the Tories came back more strongly than I think probably even they expected. Where is the threat? Like you said, having been at such a high level before, where is the th who poses the greatest threat to the SNP? 
I think that's a really interesting question. I don't think in the election this time that we saw many of our voters actually voting for other people. We saw some of our voters staying at home and not coming out and not being as enthusiastic about the SNP as they've been previously. Um, I think, you know, obviously there was a Corbyn bounce. Um, Even in Scotland, because there, there had to be a debate about whether or not he was big. I said previously, if Corbyn was to turn up to a um, big music festival in Scotland, he certainly wouldn't get the reception that he got, at, you know, somewhere like Glastonbury. And I think part of that is actually because um, people in England have lacked that kind of progressive voice to vote for. They've not had anybody on the left that's been making a clear, a clear case for policies on the left. Whereas in Scotland, people have already got that. They've already got the SNP that's been making the case for these policies. And a lot of the things that, that Jeremy Corbyn is suggesting are things that the SNP are already doing or already our policies um, so I don't really know where the, where the threat is going to come from I think um, we have seen the Scottish Tories who went into Westminster full of fire and really excited and how they were going to defy Theresa May and then they just all fell into line behind her um, we've seen the Scottish Labour Party who have not been terribly competent, they're currently looking for a new leader, um, that seems to have caused even more infighting than there was previously in Scottish Labour, so I think the alternative propositions for the Scottish people are not very positive at this moment in time. Trying to get people enthusiastic and excited year after year after year is, is difficult. It is difficult to keep people enthusiastic and excited and it's difficult to keep people for voting for more of the same when actually for some of them because of the, the changes to Tory government policy particularly around benefits and things like that you know their life's pretty rubbish and you can understand why they would want to kick out a bit and you know be a bit unhappy at um, the, whoever's in government. Um, I think you know still, we've still got the issue that some people don't understand which bits are devolved and which bits are reserved so we need to continue to make the case we need to continue to talk about the things that the Scottish Government is doing and I'm sure we will continue to do that. We need to continue to talk about how Tory austerity is harming people and we will continue to do that. I think the biggest unknown is what's going to happen in relation to Brexit. So we are a long time after the Brexit vote. How is it that we don't have any idea? I understand the point about, you know, at the point at which the EU negotiators will suddenly um, fall into line or not fall into line and the UK will fall into line. But the issue is for businesses um, that they needed to know six months ago, you know, 12 months ago, they needed to be able to make decisions about where they were keeping their HQ, where they were keeping their, their people. Actually, you know, three weeks out from the leave date is far too late for businesses and therefore we will see the economic impact of this. However, you know, at whatever point the decision's making, businesses are already bailing out. Let's go back to the SNP conference. Where's the fun? What's the best? What's the best? Do you enjoy conference? I was surprised to see that the SNP karaoke starts at seven o'clock in the evening. All the other conferences, it happens about midnight when everyone may have already had a drink. Seven o'clock. That's like that's like almost work hours. Are you suggesting we haven't had a drink by seven o'clock? Well, that's what I wondered. <laughs> that's what I wondered. Maybe, maybe it's because you know, the nights are drawing in. And you know. The SNP conference is a massive set piece event. It's run by um, the, the students um, and it's absolutely fab. It's a really, really good event and a huge number of people turn up. I think it makes quite a lot of money for the Young Scots, which is, is absolutely brilliant. And what's your song? I don't do karaoke. If you check my Twitter bio out, it says, Can't Sing. That doesn't normally stop people doing karaoke. I hate karaoke, so I'll be with you. Hamish, if you were to find yourself at the SMP students' karaoke night, what would be your song? Well, you, the SMP conference, always, if you want to really get a hit at the SMP conference, you have to sing some, some slow Scottish folk song that, that goes back centuries, and that way you'll get everybody on their feet. That's what 
to me, SMP Copters always used to be about that thing. Late night in the bars, someone with a guitar would start singing. And, and it, there was more of that, that kind of, you know, misty-eyed look that, that always has been, been, the, been the part of the SMP conference rather than the kind of upbeat karaoke that you might get at Labour Party. The, the perfect ending would be for you to burst into song, but I sense that... Uh, I think I'll, I'll, I'll leave that one, Matt. I sense that you're not going to. Hey, Mr. Kirsty, thank you very much. Cool fact, a crocodile can't stick out its tongue. Also, you can get health insurance for a month or just under a year in some states. United Healthcare short-term insurance plans, underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, offer flexible, budget-friendly coverage for you. Learn more at UH1.com. It's that time of the year. Your vacation is coming up. You can already hear the beach waves, feel the warm breeze, relax, and think about work. You really, really want it all to work out while you're away. Monday.com gives you and the team that peace of mind. When all work is on one platform and everyone's in sync, things just flow. Wherever you are, tap the banner to go to Monday.com. When you make decisions for your company, you look for the no-brainers. If you have a lot of mailing to do, Stamps.com is the ultimate no-brainer. Use the Stamps.com mobile app to mail everything you need to keep your business running with up to 89% off USPS and UPS. Make the same no-brainer decision as over 1 million other businesses with Stamps.com. Use code PROGRAM for a special offer. That's Stamps.com, code PROGRAM. Okay, I'm joined now by Stuart McDonnell, defence spokesman for the SNP in Westminster. It's even getting into international affairs, but particularly Europe is, is very much on your beat. So, gents, what's the, people keep telling me the conference is a bit flat. Is it a bit flat? Not, Stuart. You can't have a flat conference in Glasgow for a start, uh, but there are, I think, more members here than last year, which I think was the biggest. More stalls and exhibitors here than ever before as well. So the idea that it's flat is rubbish. I think you're just talking to people with hangovers. <laughs> you, could, you could well be right. Uh, what about you, Sue? Look, just, just because Nicola's voice hasn't gone and we're not all falling out with each other doesn't make it a flat conference. It, it might be a flat conference for the journalists who, were, um, who had all that excitement with Labour and the Tories falling out with each other. This is what a United conference looks like. Are you confident that all the letters are going to stay stuck to the, the backdrop as well? Well, for years we've, um, we've been projecting um, the, 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 it, it onto the back of the conference. I'm not sure if that's the plan this year, but that's what we've been doing. So subject to the power staying on, <laughs> fingers crossed that the lights don't go out, it should be OK. So um, one of the things that has struck me, uh, speaking to people the last couple of days, is this, this question of independence hadn't been on the agenda. We, we assume that Nicola Sturgeon will, t- will talk about it in some way. She talks about Scotland having a, making its own decisions and that sort of thing. Is there a risk if independence is off the table, at least for the time being, until public opinion turns? You have to sort of almost reinvent yourself as a party which is for other things rather than just independence. Well, first of all, we all agree on independence. So having a debate on it, you know, I mean, I I think think you get a fairly overwhelming vote. But... The SNP has been about all sorts of things for 10 years. Remember, we're a decade in power when we've delivered all the things that Labour's just starting to get round of, like free tuition fees, free prescription charges, you know, um, the, the world-leading climate change legislation. And in spite of the fact that we've been in power for 10 years, we're also ahead in the opinion polls as well, something that no other political party has managed. So this transformation has, has, has already taken place. Stuart, if we, if we had peak Nats, peak SNP, Given that what happened in the 2015 election, you had all but three of the seats in Scotland, in a way, 
after that, the only way was down. Look, can you imagine if we got 35 MPs elected in 2015? Would have been, you know, cock a hoop with joy. I know that's the line. That, Nicholas Sturgeon keeps you, but you didn't. You got 56, and then you went down to 35. That, that's true, but we've still got a majority of seats, and obviously we're, we're deeply sorry to lose lots of uh, good and able colleagues and some big names in particular, but... It's true in politics, what goes up does come down and the SNP will be you know, subject to the same forces as any other party, particularly one that's in government. But what you can see at this conference, as Stephen said, is a conference united. I get that you guys had a great weeks of entertainment, a Labour and Tory conference. This is a conference that's getting on with the job. And on the thing about the lights going out, yesterday at the diplomatic reception, we didn't know that the lights were powered by sensors. And during a speech by the Cabinet Secretary, when everyone was standing still the lights went out because nobody was moving around. I did, I, I did something worse. I was in a, a fringe at the Lib Dems and it was packed. It is worse. Yeah, it is worse. <laughs> that alone is worse. And uh, I was standing up at the back and I leant backwards and suddenly realised I was leaning against the dimmer switch that basically turned all the lights off. But before anyone noticed, I just leant back again and switched them back on again. And that was the most exciting thing that happened at the fringe in a whole, uh, in a whole hour. So just very quickly, then, what does the SNP need to do next? Because what, what struck me is the Tories were sort of, they're embroiled in this inquest as to what went wrong in, uh, in June. It doesn't feel like the SNP is doing that. Some of your colleagues I've spoken to think that maybe you ought to be doing that a bit more to look at what went wrong. Is that a fair criticism that, that you need to reflect on, on losing quite so many seats? and how you turn that around again? Um, I think all of us speak to our local parties about... Look, something that I even did after 2015 when we had a good result was go back to my, my local party and say, how can we do things better? How do we continue to engage? We, we, we keep on working, you know. We didn't stop chapping doors. We didn't stop speaking to people. Um, but we've also got a job of work to do nationally as well, which is you've got Brexit. The SNP are, re, are, are united on this. We've, you know... I've got a job to do, Stuart's got a job to do, to represent our constituents down at Westminster, try and work with other political parties where we can. So, if you like, the campaigning doesn't stop, but then it never did stop. But actually, the politics needs to keep on going because folk expect us to get on with it, the job as well. Do you, presumably, you both prefer being at home in Scotland than being down in Westminster? How have you, it's been a couple of years now, you've both been MPs. Do you, have you grown to enjoy life in Westminster? No, it's because it's... <laughs> It's just the most odd place ever, but not just, you know, we're not just here at home, but we're having this conference in my home city of Glasgow, just a wee bit too north of the river for me, but never mind. But I want to just address this point. The thing to remember is that no matter what else is offered in politics, we offer the boldest idea in politics in Scotland, which is the creation of a new nation state. And that will always need refining, that will always need constant reviewing and constant work, but it's happening. We just don't have these fights in public like our opponents. Oh, that's, that's the past political broadcast bit. What about you, Steve? Do you, you, enjoy, do you enjoy life in Westminster? Um, I sort of put up with life in Westminster, but... I also had a baby two weeks before polling day, or my wife did rather. Um, so getting home's really nice. Um, and that commute to London every week is, 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 is murder. But look, plenty of people have got bits of their job that they like and bits of their job that they don't like. And um, the commute to London isn't great. Westminster is a bit of a bubble. But I suppose we are there because um, we're trying to do ourselves out of a job at Westminster. We all have bits of our jobs we don't like. I've spent four weeks going to party conferences. So uh, <laughs> there we are. <laughs> it's, been, it's been absolutely been fabulous. Been Gents, really good to meet you. Stuart McDonald, Stephen Gethins. Thank you very much. The late, great Canon Kenyon Wright once said this, there is another way 
It is marked the road of hope. Hope for a new nation at ease with its past, confident in its present and hopeful for its future. This is the time to believe in and work for that better future. This is the time to put ourselves firmly in the driving seat of our own destiny. That is what the people of Scotland deserve. Conference, that is what we will deliver. Thank you. So literally, Nicola Sturgeon is still on the stage taking the applause. We're joined by Alex Massey, Times uh, columnist in Scotland. Alex, was your spine tingled? No, it was left untingled, I'm afraid, Matt. And uh, that was a fairly perfunctory speech, actually, by Nicola Sturgeon. I think the, the big reveal was the announcement of a publicly owned energy company that would operate on a not-for-profit basis to compete with the big energy firms. But that was really about it in terms of domestic policy. They liked it, though. Uh, it, got, it, was, it was one of the first big enthusiastic standing ovations. That, that, that's true. That, that, you know, that, was, that was something that went down very well. And the rest of the speech, however, was a sort of laundry list of uh, domestic policy announcements that was, uh, didn't really move us on very much from the programme for government announced last month. Uh, and on the biggest issues of all, on, on Brexit and independence, um, Nicola Sturgeon actually didn't have very much that was new to say or noteworthy to say. Um, you know, she, she said that, uh, uh, you know, that it sort of confirmed the sense that Brexit in particular is going to have a massive impact on the future, not just of Scottish politics, but obviously of British politics. And we don't really know exactly yet what that impact is going to be. The SNP remain convinced, and this was a theme running throughout this conference, that it will one day play to their advantage, that the chaos of Brexit will uh, in, uh, inspire people of Scotland to, to consider independence once again. And they think that they can have a referendum before the next Scottish Parliament elections in 2021, although again, how you actually get to that remains um, unexplored and undefined. And so when, it was interesting, it felt sitting in the hall like obviously the delegates were desperate for the big clap line on independence. It never really came, even in the, the one standing ovation there was for talk of independence, only about I'd say half three quarters of people got up and she said you know we, we can, we must, we will always make the case for independence which isn't quite the same as, you know, and it's just around the court. Yeah, I mean, there's a certain... It was yeah. sort of, we're going to keep on talking about it, but I don't know when it's going to happen. Yeah, I mean, there was a certain, you know, element of, you know, the Pope reminding his audience that he's a Roman Catholic uh, about, <laughs> about that, um, you know. Uh, but you're right. I mean, I thought that the speech, while well-received by the party faithful, wasn't, uh, didn't send them into raptures of delight the way previous um, conference speeches from Nicola Sturgeon have done. Um, and that, I think, reflects the general uncertainty that we have at the moment, that, that this was a, a conference, I think, that was largely about holding a line, about waiting to see what happens uh, in terms of Brexit and other developments. And, and, and in that sense, you know, the SNP is responding to events rather than making the political weather, um, you know, to, to refer to an old political cliche. And, and that, that is something that is They're not, they're not used to that, are yeah. they? Because they've been used to, for the last 10 years, being mm -hmm. in the ascendancy Winning, yeah. winning in Hollywood, winning all the seats, almost all the seats in Westminster elections. Uh, even during the independence referendum campaign, they were making the case. They were on the front foot. And to be in this sort of holding pattern, waiting to see what happens down in London with Brexit, I think it's it, difficult. It, it is difficult, and you know, I mean, Angus Robertson, uh, who's speaking, of course, lost his seat in June. But you know, he reminded the conference that you know the SNP has won the last seven elections at all levels of Scottish um, democracy. You know, they are the Scottish establishment now. They are the uh, the political masters, if you like. And so, th there is. Um, 
uh, a difficulty in being both the dominant party in, in Scotland and at the same time vulnerable to external events. And, and that is something that, that the party is still coming to terms with and still coming to terms actually with the setback of the general election result in which it lost 21 seats and a significant share of its vote. And that is something that I think has, has meant that it can't actually now shame the UK government into delivering a second independence referendum that the majority of people in Scotland don't want anytime soon. And so that means that it will have to be until delayed until after, as Nicola Sturgeon puts it, the general terms of Brexit are clear. Now, what that means and when that will be possible, you know, is again up in the air. And so, you know, this was a sort of, um, you know, the SNP exists on a sort of plateau now. It's not declining massively, but it's no longer, you know, hitting the heights or, or a, you don't have the sense of a, of a party with an irresistible momentum and march towards, march towards history on its side. I thought one of the, uh, in terms of the politics, one of the um, striking things is that um, any other party conference or any other politician from a different party, they never comment on polls. They are sort mm. of a line that they don't comment on polls. Mm. There's only one poll that matters, that's mm. one of the politics. The SNP are obsessed with polls. Yeah. They're mm. constantly referring to individual polls. They seem particularly obsessed with the Times' most recent mm. YouGov poll, mm. which puts the Conservatives in third place behind the mm. Labour Party. Mm. And they're upset. Every single sort of speech seems to have mentioned it. And, and yet, in her speech overall, Nicola Sturgeon reserved almost all of her attacks with the Conservatives, both in Westminster and with Davidson, with the Labour Party only mentioned sort of in passing. So they clearly still see the Tories as a threat and want to try and establish the idea that they're in third place. I think that's true. Um, you know, the question is, you know, how much higher um, can Ruth Davidson take the Scottish Conservatives is something that uh, is going to be one of the main stories in Scottish politics over the next couple of years. Equally, what sort of Labour Party emerges from the current contest uh, and will a, 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 if you like, more left-wing populist Labour Party be able to, um, to to eat into the SNP support amongst left-wing Scots, and that's you know one of the things that will also be interesting. There's also, as you say, this obsession with polls and so on, and particularly good polls and so on. And so <laughs> I sometimes refer to it as Sally Field nationalism. So if you remember the actress Sally Field when she won her Oscar, um, she she sort of gush, they gave this gushing speech and so on. You know, I can't I can't deny that right now you really really like me. Um, and there's a, a lot of that in, in Scottish nationalist <laughs> circles as well. So, you know, they're obsessed with external validation. Um, you know. So anytime anyone says something nice about Scotland, and so on, you know, Scotland's the most beautiful country in the world, and so on, that's a massive, you know, the easy cheer line for the SNP. It's on. Look at us, aren't we great? Um, and of course, that's to be contrasted with the sort of hellish dystopia of a Westminster government in England, a Tory government in England, uh, and the rest of the UK, and so on. That is that is ravaging the countryside and laying waste to our cities and our futures. Uh, so just as we wind up, they're literally dismantling the um, the stands around us. What, what, what do you think lies in store for Scottish politics over the next few months and, and years? Uh, well, I mean, the SNP have been in power for 10 years, and so it is not surprising that a little bit of the shine has come off them, um, that they are not as popular as they once were. At the same time, they do remain the dominant party in, in Scottish politics, and they're likely to do so for the foreseeable future. The Times poll that you uh, were referring to earlier suggests as much as well, that if there were to be an election, they would lose a few seats at Holyrood, but they would remain the largest party by far. Um, and that is the sort of new establishment, the new status quo in Scottish politics, was, um, uh, and doesn't look likely to change any time soon, because it remains the case that overall your political views in Scotland are dictated by your constitutional preferences. And for as long as you know, 40, 45% of people support independence, the SNP are going to find themselves in a position that, it is, uh, that if not unassailable, is certainly very hard to assail. And it'll be interesting to see what happens uh, in terms of enthusiasm for independence alongside Brexit. Does a bad Brexit deal make people more likely to want 
to go it alone with independence? Or do they think, do they look at the complicated mess of Brexit and think, well, we don't want to go through all that all over again. It's bad enough trying to get out of one union but leaving two too complicated. And nobody really knows how those two things play out. Exactly. That is the, the, the great core fundamental question upon which so much else will depend, I think. Um, and at the moment, if you speak to SNP people, the general view is that Brexit will eventually work to their advantage. That said, within the within the the party, there are some voices who worry that perhaps it might not. You know, so that that's the question. You know, what if we're wrong about that? What do we do then? Is the sort of thing that all political parties need to ask themselves, and not nearly enough do. You know, you need to have a plan B, sometimes even a plan C, um, and that's not yet clear that the SNP have that. But then, to be fair to them, uh, with regard to Brexit, um, you know, they are not the only party without a plan. <laughs> a plan, yeah, never mind plan B, a plan A, a plan A would be good. Uh, but it, uh, it, it seems like we've come to the end of the conversation and uh, nobody anywhere knows what the hell's going on and that's why politics are so interesting if in times um, slightly daunting. Uh, but thanks to Alex, also my other guests, Hamish, uh, Kirsty, Stuart and Stephen. Uh, as ever you can sign up to my morning email briefing at thetimes.co.uk forward slash red box and subscribe to the podcast on iTunes and Android and all the usual places where you get it. But for now, from me, Matt Chorley in Glasgow, it's goodbye. Thank you for downloading. To discover more, head to thetimes.co.uk.